I like the idea of bowing to the sacred space because what makes it sacred is us. We give it that energy and that place. So I'm going to talk about the, the, the precepts that a Buddhist takes. And you might want to take them for the length of the retreat today. And I bet you won't break any of them. <laughs> you know? So the traditional model in Buddhism is sila, samadhi, panya. Sila is personal discipline. Samadhi is meditation. Panya is wisdom. And that's the... That's how it works traditionally, though any linear model uh, uh, turns out to be unworkable in spirituality. It doesn't seem to go from A to B. It seems to go A, C, D, B. But that's what makes the spiritual practice so exciting. So the five precepts of a Buddhist. When someone wants to become an official Buddhist... They take five precepts and three refuges. The three refuges are, I take refuge in the Buddha as a world teacher, someone who is wise and and succeeded in ending his suffering. I take refuge in the Dharma. He left behind the map on how he did it. And I take refuge in the Sangha the monks and nuns who are trying to emulate the Buddha's lifestyle. And that is the refuge we take when things in our life go wrong or out of whack. We reflect on the qualities of the Buddha. We read the Dharma and reflect on the Dharma. And we hang out with the monks and nuns who seem to have a pretty moderate lifestyle, which allows us to get back into balance and stay focused. But we also take the five precepts, which, unlike the commandments, is something we voluntarily take. And the only thing that happens when we break a precept is we suffer more rather than less. So that would be your reference point. How am I holding the precepts? Am I suffering more? Am I suffering less? The first precept is the one that's perhaps most important. I will practice not to take life. Now, the word practice is in there for a reason. The idea is that this is a practice I'm going to commit to. And I'm going to fail, and I'm not going to be 100%, but less things will die because of my practice. Now... It's a difficult practice, to say the least. It's fairly easy not to kill humans. You know, and that's where we start. Okay, today I'm not going to kill any humans, and I think I can make it through the whole day without taking anybody out. You know? So it sounds easy for us, but what happens if you find yourself in the military? What happens if you're a police officer who, who has a weapon of destruction that he carries with him all the time? in service and duty to the community. How does he approach that? How does she approach that? It's difficult. So one of the things I suppose we need to do to fully hold that precept is not put ourselves in a situation that would encourage us to take life. To give you an example, I have a Facebook friend who has a farm on the East Coast. 
and he had a wonderful woolly steer, long hair, brown, big horns, amazing horns. And he also had another one that sort of reddish hair. And he was posting pictures of these two wonderful creatures. And then he had a picture of both of them waiting for transport. And one of the Facebook people said, where are they going? (laughs) And I just, it didn't dawn on me until that moment that what a difficult situation that must be for farmers who feed and care and make a life as good as they can for this animal, knowing in the end it will be slaughtered and eaten. And that's how they maintain their farm. And I just had a certain sadness the whole day when I saw those two beautiful creatures waiting for transport. And I thought to myself, wow, it's not easy being a farmer, you know? And then I thought, well, it's not easy to be anything. We may not kill cows or chickens or pigs, but most of us probably kill mosquitoes and ants and cockroaches because they're in our place and they're not supposed to be there. Now, of course, they don't know they're not supposed to be there. And we, rather than telling them or catching them and taking them outside, we just kill them. It's the fastest way to solve that dilemma, death. So as you practice the Buddhist precept of not to take life, what you start to see is it's a real challenge, and it takes a lot of time. The other day I saw a spider crawling down a curtain in my room. And I went, oh, man. So I got a container. I chased the spider. I caught the spider. I took him outside. And I thought, how many minutes or hours will it be till he gets back in my room? (laughs) (laughs) And I'll have to do it again. But all the while, while I was catching to release, catch and release, I thought to myself, how precious his life is. Because what are the chances of that spider being in my room, and not only in my room, but on earth? It's not going to live that long, and it never was here before, and it will never be back in its current form. And it is a miracle that it made it. And and so all the while I'm catching it, I'm thinking about the miracle of life, myself included. All the centuries and eons that I wasn't here... And then one day in 1949, I showed up. And I thought to myself, wow, where was I before I was born? And apparently nowhere, according to most theories, but for a Buddhist, it's just one of the many lifetimes I have lived. And now I'm living it in this way, and next lifetime, I'm not sure. I'd like to be a heaven being for a while and take a rest and enjoy the bliss and rapture of karma, but who knows? And then I'll go through it again and again and again. And even if I commit suicide, I go through it again and again and again until finally I achieve nirvana and don't have to go through it again and again and again. And when you think about dying, you think that might be the end. But for a Buddhist, no, it's just another beginning. Another chance to suffer. (laughs) And every life I've lived, I have suffered. 
And thankfully, in this lifetime, I found the teachings of the Buddha, and I was assured that at some point, I would achieve nirvana because I had Buddha nature, which is my potential to achieve nirvana and end my suffering. But, but there's no time limit. It could be another 100,000 human lifetimes before I finally figure it out that I've always been there and now I realize it and now I don't have to suffer anymore. So in killing, we cause a lot of suffering. Now, I take care of feral cats, and we have, well, most of them, I I must admit, most of them aren't feral. Most of them are abandoned. In my neighborhood, when somebody moves, they don't take their pets necessarily. They just leave the door open. And so somehow they find their way into the back of the meditation center, where they find food and friendship and other cats, and we have a little colony. And about midnight, the party begins. (laughs) So they really like it in our backyard. But I, I've been asked, you know, if, if a cat is really sick, should you euthanize him? Should you kill them? Or should you let them die a natural death? And this has been a dilemma for me because, you know, cats don't last long enough. They might last 10 years or 15 years. But in my whole lifetime, I've gone through a lot of cats and dogs. And I've seen some die really well. And I've seen some die in just horrible ways. And I don't know how to find out before they die which one it's going to be. I can't tell by looking at them how well they're going to die. So some of the cats, I do get euthanized. I take them, and then they're put to sleep, which I I love that term, put to sleep, because it makes me feel better. But I also see that, that I'm doing sort of the bodhisattva thing. If I put a cat to sleep that might suffer more rather than less when it's dying, that I am going now going to share in the karma of killing the cat. And hopefully I have enough good deeds and good speech and good thoughts to balance that out so I won't feel the full impact of taking a cat to be killed. And, and it's, a, it's a fairly painless way to go and then other times I've let them stay in my room and two years ago little Leo little orange cat only was with us a couple years had a lot of issues he was listening to the Pope on Christmas Eve (laughs) give the talk and he passed away and he did it so peacefully just like one breath went out and nothing came back and there he just laid in front of the TV set with the Pope talking I saw, you can't die any better than that. (laughs) That's perfect. And then when the morning sun came up, I took him to the backyard and we buried him back in our little cat cemetery. And, and, And there he sits. He'll be with us forever in some form or another. So, can we not kill? Can we go through a day and not kill? No, we can't. We're not set up that way. We have to eat. All the stuff we eat was at one time alive. Vegetarians feel pretty proud of themselves because they're not killing animals. But have they ever heard a broccoli scream as you pull it out of the ground? It's horrendous. You know? 
So we have to kill in order to sustain our life, but the vegetarians are killing the lowest life forms they can in order to sustain their life. And the meat eaters are oftentimes doing that because they live in cold climates and need that kind of protein to survive. And we all have to make our own choice. As a Buddhist, we're not better because we're vegetarian. As a Buddhist, it's a necessity sometimes to be vegetarian. For instance, when Buddhism went from India to China. Now, at the time of the Buddha, he was a beggar, and all his monks were beggars. And they go from little village to village collecting food, and they would get the leftovers of the family's food, and they would eat that. And they, had, they couldn't show preference. They could not accept it. They had to accept it. And oftentimes the villagers would eat chicken and fish, and so the monks were eating chicken and fish. So the Buddha was not a vegetarian. But now Buddhism went to China. And they had a dilemma because they weren't going to be begging in China. It wasn't really cool to beg in China, so they built monasteries. They were going to live in the monasteries, and they were going to practice. And then people would go to the monasteries to hear the Dharma talks. But now they had to eat. And they, f- they figured out, well, which monk or nun is going to go kill the chickens for us so we can have lunch and ruin their karma? Well, they said, maybe we don't need to go kill chickens and pigs and cows. Maybe we don't even need to have them. We'll just be vegetable people and we'll have gardens and the monks and nuns will till the soil and they'll collect the vegetables and we'll be vegetarian. So Chinese Buddhism, Vietnamese Buddhism, vegetarian, you know? And when you go to a Thai temple or a Sri Lankan temple, they have a little meat thrown in there. And a Tibetan temple, they have some meat in there too. So, but they do it because they need to live so they can practice the Dharma, so they can find a way to end their suffering in this lifetime or the next. And so it's up to us to decide which we want, what do we want to do. Do we want to be vegetarians or do we want to be meat eaters? And maybe if you're not sure, maybe you could be a vegetarian a couple times a week and be a meat eater the rest of the week. And then as your practice deepens and you start to see the faces of the animal and that In-N-Out burger that you're eating, (laughs) then you could go a little bit further. Maybe three or four days a week you're vegetarian and the rest of the time you're a meat eater. You know? And it's up to us. It's going to be for monks. Let me clarify for monks. If a monk hears the animal being killed for them, they can't eat that animal. So we're, we're complicit then because we, we knew it was being killed for us. We heard the animal screaming and then we ate the animal. And that would cause us to have bad karma rather than good karma. Do not kill. If you like to fish, big problem. What do you do? You know, you got a boat, you got a lure, you got a pole, you go out into the ocean, you go into a lake, it's a wonderful day, you get a six pack of beer, and all day long you're killing fish. Never had a better day. Well, they don't call it killing fish, they call it fishing. Another euphemism. And it's big business. And people like to kill fish, and people like to eat fish. But as a Buddhist monk, I can't go fishing anymore. I, I'm stuck, you know. I can eat fish if it's offered to me, as long as it wasn't killed specifically for me, you know, and I like fish. So sometimes when we take the first precept not to take life, it changes our life. It sets us off in a new direction. It allows us to rethink our place in the universe. 
can we live in harmony with all sentient beings, you know? And, and can we support them and not have to kill them? And it's, it's a big problem, and it takes a lot of work. And when you get down to that hundred ants on your counter, you'll know how good you're doing. <laughs> you know? Second one, not to take what is not given. So first one is, I will practice not to take life. Second one, I will practice not to take what is not given. Which can be translated into not stealing, or, or, but it's more than that. It's simply, if it's not offered to you, you can't even use it. And this is difficult, because if you go to Denny's and there's ketchup on the table, the dilemma begins. Should I ask the waitress if I can use it? Will she be kind enough to offer it to me? So I can have it on my chili cheeseburger, you know. And, and so, again, a lot of rethinking goes into consumerism, ownership. Do we really own anything? We all get receipts, of course. Gives the illusion of ownership. But is it really ours? And if somebody takes something we think we own that we're just using because we have a receipt, do we get angry at them? Or do we let them use it now? Now it's their turn to use it. And then somebody else will steal it from them, and maybe it'll be the third person's time to use it. How about that car? Do you really own your car? Have you ever had your radio stolen right out of your car? I had that happen on my first brand new car. My cassette deck radio was taken out. And there was this big hole in my dashboard, and I was really disappointed. You know, how could somebody violate my property? And I asked the car in a large, strong voice, who owns you? And I listened carefully for a response. Silence. It didn't know I owned it. You know, I had the receipts. I had the registration. I had the insurance. But I didn't really have the ownership. It was only mine as long as I thought it was. But after that radio was stolen, I rethought the idea of ownership and realized I didn't even own myself. I I looked in the mirror this morning and I said, if I owned me, I wouldn't look like this. (laughs) So there you go, you know. If we can't own ourselves, what can we own? But people think they do, and if you take what they think they own, they will suffer. And not to take what is not given is a clue. It allows us to live in harmony with others who have a lot of stuff or who have a little stuff. But it's never our stuff. Number three, I will practice not indulging in sexual misconduct. And lordy, lordy, lordy. You watch the news and you watch the award shows and one guy wins the trophy and the next day he's assaulted five women in 1974 and you'll never see him again. He'll never work again. You go, wow, things are really changing. But what is sexual misconduct? You know, how do we know when we cross the line? Well, for a Buddhist, we have four lines not to cross. So it makes it a little easier for us to decide how well we're doing not indulging in sexual misconduct. Number one, don't have sex with people who are married. Well, you know, all you got to watch is TMZ, one episode, and you go, geez, 
If they followed that rule, there'd be a lot more happiness in the world and a lot less suffering. But why would the Buddha have said that? I thought to myself, and then it became perfectly clear the Buddha was a husband, and he was a father, as Siddhartha. So before he became the Buddha, he was a husband and he was a father, and he knew that families were the building block of every society. And you didn't want to upset that society by ruining the building blocks. Second one, don't have sex with people who are engaged to be married. Because they're getting ready to make a really big commitment to another person. Now, I've never been married. I've only been, you know, a monk and then before that single. But I look at the the situation of saying to to myself, I'm going to live with you the rest of my life. I can't even live with myself, (laughs) let alone another person. (laughs) But they make that commitment. It is amazing. And then besides making the commitment... They have a family. They have little kids that will take the rest of their life to raise. You know, and there's no guarantee they're going to turn out good. I mean, why would you want to do that? But they do that. So there you go. Number three, don't have sex with children. Because children are being supported by their parents. They're not ready to have sex. They don't want a relationship. They want to play ball. They want to go swimming. They want to learn stuff in school. They want to go to parties. Let them be kids, you know, before they have to get into all that stuff of partners and mates and having their own kids and worrying about money and future and college. Whoa, whoa, whoa. When I was a kid, I was really dumb. And now that I look back on it, I was so lucky that I was dumb. Raised in Phoenix, Arizona. We had a cow pasture right across the street. So for fun, we used to try to ride the cows. And, and they go right for the barbed wire fence and scrape us off. You know? But those were the days. At my current age, I wouldn't even dream of doing that. But when you're a kid, you get to do dumb stuff and have a lot of fun. Number four, don't have sex with people against their will. So all these Me Too things, a lot of them had sex against their will. For whatever reason, they weren't willing participants. And the Buddha saw that as being a real issue because it causes more suffering rather than less suffering. So these four ways of looking at sexual misconduct, I think should be, should be, maybe could be, a reference point for most people, not being Buddhist being Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, it would still work because it gives dignity to relationship and it gives dignity to each person. And that commitment that you make when you finally do have sex with somebody should be on both sides, but it should be spiritual as as well as secular. There's a lot of learning that's going to go on in every relationship, mostly what's wrong with you. But that's just the way it works. (laughs) Number four, don't speak unskillfully. I will practice not to speak unskillfully. Four kinds of unskillful speech we should try to avoid. Number one, false speech. 
malicious speech, harsh speech, gossip or idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech increase suffering rather than decrease suffering. Can we live a life of skillful speech? It is so difficult because sometimes you speak before you think, even though we know that's impossible. We need to have an intention to speak before it happens. But sometimes I have said just really dumb and stupid things. And I look back at myself and I go, what was wrong? Well, what was wrong was I wasn't mindful of the moment and the situation. Because a lot of things I say are not in context with what's going on. So I might think of something like a quote I posted on Facebook. And I might just bring it up completely out of context. And then people look at me like, what's wrong with him? Is he close to enlightenment? (laughs) No, he's not. He just needs to put the right words in the right situation. And in order to do that, I need to be present. I need to be fully engaged in the process of of communication. And I shouldn't try to be clever and I shouldn't try to be humorous out of context because it's often misunderstood. And the other day I was talking to my sister. And, you know, she's a wonderful person and, and, and she was driving from... Phoenix to L.A., back to Phoenix, and she was going 103 miles an hour. And they caught her on the 10 in Arizona. Well, they just started waiting there like frogs on a rock for somebody to drive by quickly. So I said to my sister, you're really stupid. Man, that was the wrong thing to say. You know. Because at a certain age, when you do stuff like that, you're not ignorant. You're just sort of stupid, or you're not paying attention, or you think you can get away with it, and that's when they get you. So I tried to backstep out of that comment, impossible. Once it leaves your mouth, it's there forever. So I'm giving her my old Kindle, trying to make up to her for for my indiscretion. Number five, I will practice not to consume intoxicants. Wow. You know how hard it's getting in California not to consume intoxicants? (laughs) Because now we have more intoxicants available to us. We didn't have that before. But now we can get high on so many other ways. We can get marijuana, and we have little candies with marijuana, and we get da-da-da-da, and everybody's walking around. In my neighborhood, everything seems to be more quiet since marijuana became legal, which is nice. They're sort of mellowing out, you know. But what's the problem with getting high? Because we seem to have gotten high forever. As soon as we were human, we figured out a way to get high. They've had beer, like, for generations. You know, it's ancients had beer. They knew how to make beer. And then back in the Hindu tradition in India, they had something called Soma, S-O-M-A, which was a magical elixir which would get you high and you'd see the gods up close and personal. So the Buddha said the problem with getting high is it steals all your wisdom and you end up doing really stupid things and cause more suffering rather than less. And if you're too high, you can break the other four precepts and not even know you did. 
So it's a way of staying sane and not getting caught in the delusional mind state of being high. Now, one of my favorite teachers is Ramdas. And Ramdas got high a lot. He did LSD. He was like a pioneer. Every time he'd take off on LSD, it was like he got into a rocket ship and just went out into the unknown. But you know what he said? He said the problem with getting high on drugs is that the drugs become the way you get high. It's not natural. You become dependent on that. But you can get high in meditation, too. And that's a very natural place to do it, and no one's ever going to bust you for that. You know, and you can alter, you have altered states of consciousness, which is so cool. And then the gong rings, and you come right back down and have a cup of coffee. Life is good. So can we find a way to get high naturally and not have to indulge in all the other ways of getting high and lose all our wisdom? Because when you meditate to get high, you gain wisdom. You don't lose it. You gain insight into the nature of what it means to be you and your relationship to everything else. So these five precepts are the building blocks of our meditation practice. And if you can have these five precepts, and practice them every day, you'll have much better meditation. Now, Neil said today, asking about the precepts, he said, is there, is there sometimes a problem with people taking the precepts too seriously? And then their life becomes sort of like a monk life, but they're living in the real world. And I said, you know what, Neil? The Buddha said everything by moderation, even the precepts. So can we be moderate in the way we practice our precepts? Can we allow ourselves to make mistakes, break the precepts, and not hate ourselves for it, but just look at it as going, wow, not a Buddha yet. I have more work to do, you know? And then you just take them again, you know? So you, you, you break the unskillful speech precept, and then you simply take it again. Sometimes you might have to take it four or five times a day. But every time you retake that precept, you are aware of what you've done. And that is a real gift. You're aware that you broke the precept. And that, that will allow you to see the mind states that led you to the breaking of the precept. And when those mind states arise again, you may be clever enough not to open your mouth or do any kind of action. Just wait for them to pass until the next mind state arises. Those are the five precepts that every Buddhist takes and tries to keep. Does anybody have any questions or comments on the five precepts? Yes, sir. Yeah, it seems like all of the precepts in the way that you presented them are oriented towards reducing suffering. And I had a question. You mentioned that you would incur bad karma when you euthanized a cat in order to spare it from suffering. And that doesn't seem, that seems to be a contradiction in terms of it, it, it could be a contradiction, and there's a lot of paradoxes in the spiritual path. But the idea is I had the intention to kill the cat. Even if I had a good reason to kill the cat, I was still breaking the first precept. Now, in, in my case, it becomes uh, big business because when a monk kills the cat, it's ten times worse than when a lay person kills the cat. So am I willing to accept the consequences of my unskillful action 
knowing full well that it is the first precept and I will be breaking it? Do I have enough good karma to balance the bad karma that I'm creating so I don't have to feel all the consequences of that decision? So a lot of it goes into it, and it's very interesting to look at life that way. Am I willing to break a precept to reduce suffering? And, and if I am, could it turn out eventually to be the right action or the right kind of speech that I was skillful at that moment rather than unskillful? And you never know. That's the problem. You never know until the consequences start to manifest. So, yeah, it is paradoxical. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's what we work with every time we sort of have a choice in the matter. Thank you. Neil. I was in Germany a number of years ago visiting some uh, <clears throat> the parents of a friend that we had. And uh, we were invited to their home, this beautiful, beautiful home, uh, and they were serving sauerbrot. And at that time, I was a pra- practicing the precepts and was a vegetarian. But my thought was it would be unskillful not to eat this beautiful meal that was presented to me, and it would be a worse thing. So that's... I think of that a lot as an example of, of, of the exceptions of whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. That it, would, it would have been improper even as a Buddhist to say, I'm sorry, I can't eat your, your, your meal. It would have caused more suffering probably rather than less, except for the animal. But yes. there's a story of a, uh, in Australia <laughs> of a person who was a vegetarian who became a Theravada monk in Australia. And now his first meal had meat. And he had chosen to be a monk. He had chosen to follow the precepts. And and in the Theravada tradition, you're a meat eater. And he had a a big dilemma that he needed to work out. He had a lot of issues. He did eat the meat in the meal. And he continues to eat meat today. But in his heart, he's still a vegetarian. So oftentimes, um, we make concessions. Uh, you know, for the appropriate behavior necessary in that circumstance. And then we have to rationalize it. We have to, we have to live with it. We have to see why it was, you know, important or why it was necessary. And in your case, you're right. It was necessary um, for a person who worked all day cooking to not deny that person's, you know, happiness in offering it to you. And now you have to receive it with equanimity. It's the challenge. Hi. Um, could you say something more about the fifth precept about taking intoxicants, not only physical ones, but also from your society, your magazines, your television? Yeah, you know, um, in the traditional sense, it's, it's simply uh, drugs, you know, alcohol or drugs. But uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, sort of, you know, caffeine, chocolate, Anything that sort of gets you attached and creates desire to, to replicate that action again and again and again can, can be an intoxicant. And, and the mind can be intoxicated by TV or movies or magazines or books, and it's a wonderful way to live many lives while you sit in your apartment. All those books, it's perfect. So what do you do? Well, the, the, the thing is, is, is the attachment and the desire. Drugs, alcohol causes us to be attached, have desire, and repeat again and again and again. 
doesn't seem to encourage us to be less, but it always consume more. So can we look at our life and see where we're attached? Where, you know, what, what pushes our buttons? Can I be moderate? Not do I have to deny it forever, but can I be moderate in my consumption? Can I, instead of having six-pack of beer a week, can I have three beers a week? That would be a better Buddhist by having only three rather than six. Can I change the, the fifth precept to read, I will practice not to consume intoxicants, to I will practice not to become intoxicated. That will allow me to be in social situations, have a glass of wine, and be just like everybody else. Instead of standing apart, having that glass of water, you know, and people now start running through their head, what's wrong with her or him? What's he trying to prove? Doesn't he want to be part? So, so sometimes it's more skillful to have one beer than it is to have no beers, depending on the social situation you find yourself in. That will not generally lead to intoxication. And you can continue to be normal as viewed by others. You know, and, and so um, f- for the monk, I, I did a wedding one time and I was holding a wine glass with 7-Up. And I thought to myself, oh, man, because they started taking pictures and people are going to say the monk is drinking. <laughs> and that's not good. And so I said to myself, OK, I put the wine glass down with the 7-Up and I got a Coke can. And holding the Coke can, and the guy behind the bar said, you want me to put some beer in there for you? (laughs) I said, no thanks, Coke is good. But you find yourself in certain situations where you either do or don't, for sure, and now how can I, you know, be visible to the world as not consuming intoxicants? Or how can I be visible to the world and consuming just a little intoxicant? To, to feel like I'm one of the party. So thanks for the question. I, I probably didn't answer your question, but it might have given you more questions. <laughs> Hi. Does, does karmic reaction always manifest in the life you're living, or could it manifest in a future life? Yeah, that's really good. It doesn't always manifest in this lifetime. Because it, 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 we find that really terrible people may have good lives, and die a wonderful death. And you say, but all those things they did, it didn't work out. But maybe two lifetimes down the line, they're going to have a terrible life because of all the things they did now. So when we're thinking of karma and the results of karma, we have to think of, am I skillful or unskillful? Am I willing to accept the results of my karma? Karma is what we think, what we say, what we do. The reaction, the consequence of thinking, speaking, and acting is called vipaka, V-I-P-A-K-A, in early Buddhism. So it's cause and consequence. I'm aware of the cause. I'm aware of the consequence. Am I willing to accept it? Can I change it? If I do something unskillful because I misunderstood something, karma is not going to forgive me. It has no ears to hear my pleas. So what... I need to do is start doing a lot of good things to balance the consequences that may manifest in this lifetime. Start being a better person. And then when that consequence does come to life in in my life, I won't feel the full impact of it. So it's an interesting way to look at your life. You know, I'm in charge. I suffer because of the choices I make. 
Sometimes I'm deluded or ignorant and can't make the right choice, but I'm still susceptible to those consequences. So what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Well, one way to do it is to look in your mind and say, was the intention behind that speech and action rooted in greed, hatred, or delusion? And if the intention was in one of those mind states, chances are it's going to be bad karma, unskillful karma with not-so-nice consequences. But on the other hand, if my intention is rooted in, in compassion, generosity, and wisdom, then chances are pretty good that what I think and say and do will turn out to be better rather than worse and have less suffering rather than more suffering. So this meditation that we're going to be doing today is a way of being able to watch our minds, see those mind states arise, and figure out which ones to act on and which ones not to act on, realizing that all mind states are simply temporary and eventually will go away. There you go. More than you wanted. <laughs> okay. Yes. Hi. Not to bring in other sector of religion, not spirituality, but Christians that even you know dealing with relationship and sexuality is like if you think it, you already quote unquote violated sin. You know, even you're thinking it, not acting the action. That's yeah. right. Jimmy Carter said that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. How does that work in Buddhism? Okay, well, it, it's not quite the same in Buddhism. So we have three levels of karma. We have intention. We have action. Okay, intention, speech, and action. So we have intention, speech, and action. Intention would be the thoughts. If that negative thought stops at the thought and doesn't manifest in the speech and action... That's the least amount of consequence. Something might happen. Maybe you hurt yourself, not paying attention, blah, blah, blah. When that intention turns into speech, that's a greater consequence. And when it turns into action, it's the greatest consequence of all. So our job as meditators is to keep it at the intention level, to keep it at the mind level. And if it's not skillful, don't manifest speech in action. But in order to do that, you have to be aware of your mind. And that's difficult 24-7 because the mind is everywhere, all where, all over the place, all the time. So if you have a bad thought, keep it to yourself. There you go. <laughs> yes? And now at the other end, you can do everything perfectly, like to bring up the New Testament. The Pharisees in the New Testament, they did everything, they dot every eye, but yet they had no love in their heart. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I have a real issue with love. Uh, I don't like to use the word at all. And I, in, when I'm posting my quotes, if it has the word love in it, I do not use the word or I change the word, which probably makes the quote person feel uncomfortable. But I, I think in Buddhism, you do everything right, and what you have rather than love is kindness kindness towards yourself and kindness towards others. And in Buddhism, we never generally use the word love because it's too easy to translate into lust. So we put two words together, loving kindness. And the, and, the, and, the, and the best way to express one's love is simply be kind. So I love the word kind. Don't like the word love. 
but I love kind. <laughs>